So that's Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 35 on page 1006. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High, God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what, ha what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is God's word. Thanks, Elizabeth, very much for reading that. Do keep that passage open as we look at it together. It's on page 1006 if you've closed your Bibles. And let me lead us in a prayer that God would speak to us through his word. Let's bow our heads. 
Father God, how we praise you that on this Remembrance Sunday, Lord God, that we have much that's good about your work in the world, your work in salvation history to remember. Help us, Lord God, as we look at uh, these events now from Mark chapter 4 and 5 to remember, to understand, to live in the light of what it means to trust you, to know you as you really are, and not to fear, but rather to have faith. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I don't know, as you were looking through the passage, whether you noticed that one of the big themes, arguably the great theme of the passage that comes up, is that of fear. So, if you look down at chapter 4, verse 40, Jesus said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then immediately the verse after, verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Look over the page at chapter 5, verse 15. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And then in our passage that we're looking at next week, chapter 5, verse 33 and 5, verse 36, the theme of fear versus faith comes up again. Fear. Now, it's particularly poignant, I suppose, on a day like today when we're remembering the 100th year anniversary of the Armistice Agreement that ended... Um, the First World War, that our passage deals with this issue of fear, because war is so often bound up with fear. Think of the factors, complex though they were, that caused the First World War. There was a climate of fear in Europe at that time. An arms race was going on, um, such that everyone feared that if one nation got ahead in the arms race, that they would be able to sweep through the continent. And so people were aligning themselves with military alliances, which meant that when the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand happened, immediately it was the match that lit the touch paper as a climate of fear, an already volatile climate, suddenly kicked into gear with alliances declaring war on one another and very quickly it escalated to being an all-out, not just European-wide war, but of the First World War. I mean, of course, war is always bound up with fear, not just in what it induces in us, but how it comes about. And think of the devastation of that fear. I mean, the numbers of the First World War alone are absolutely staggering and worth remembering. 16 million men, women, and children killed in the First World War. Actually, if you take the full scale of its impact, we're probably talking about 37 million people who died in that climate of fear. It's the same today, isn't it? War always induces fear. The very phrase, the war on terror, brings it into stark focus. Our fight is not so much against people or ideologies, but it's fighting terror itself. But it's not just war, is it, and the climate of fear in war. Sometimes um, fear comes closer to home. Of course, I'm conscious as I say that, that you may have indeed lost a loved one in some of the conflicts that have been going on, or you may know people who are actually on tour at the moment and serving our armed forces, and maybe you fear for them. But often fear is located in other areas, isn't it? Maybe a diagnosis that you've just got or a member of your family has got and it's plunged your family into fear. What does the future hold? Maybe you're experiencing what a lot of people are experiencing at the moment in the city, that the job market is tough, the economy is uncertain, and you fear for your job. Maybe it's something more relationally motivated. Maybe you fear being alone for the rest of your life. You don't talk to too many people about it, but it dogs you at night. Fear. How do we cope with fear? It's a very human response to a world that is much larger than us and to things that we can't control. 
And in this passage, what I want us to see is that Jesus is not remote and distant from us when we face fear. He draws alongside us, and he enables us to face up to our fears, but also to cope with those fears, not by trying to control them or explain them away or suppress them, but by substituting fear with faith. We're going to look at that in these two instances. We'll take them uh, one by one. First of all, Jesus calming the storm, where I'll call it fear of the natural, fear of the natural world. And secondly, we'll look at Jesus restoring the demon-possessed man and fear of the supernatural. Let's look, first of all, at fear of the natural. Pick up with me at verse 35. So Jesus has been doing a full day of teaching the crowds in parables, as we've been seeing over the past few weeks. And his, his disciples climb into a boat on the Sea of Galilee, an inland, very large um, lake. Now, the Sea of Galilee has particular environmental conditions that mean this type of storm that comes up here was not an uncommon occurrence, even though this one is uncommon in its size and magnitude. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is 680 feet below sea level, but surrounding it, there are large mountains and hills, particularly on the east side, that go up to some 2,000 feet, rising very, very steep and very, very quickly. And the differentials in height create differentials in pressure, which whips up the winds, and those winds are then funneled down by the natural relief of the geography into the lake. And so sudden storms, sudden squalls happen all the time on the Sea of Galilee. Now the disciples, many of them being fishermen, they know this. Many of them have been in storms before. They've certainly known from their fathers and their fathers that this is not uncommon. And yet the size of this particular storm is uncommon because they think this is one of those storms they might have heard about in deep history, one of the storms that's going to kill them. They think this will be the end of them. Look at verse 37. A furious squall, isn't that an interesting phrase, came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, in the midst of this Um, these uh, events and what Jesus is about to do is miraculous. Let me just reflect on a few things. First of all, often modern readers read this and they kind of go, okay, well, this is just a myth, isn't it? I mean, no one can calm a storm. People don't do that. We don't believe in that. You don't expect me to believe that, do you? I wonder as we read through the account, as Elizabeth read it to us, if you notice that it doesn't read as a myth or a fairy story. We get people We get times, we get places, we get concrete details. This reads as eyewitness account. The one that always gets me and gets many people is there in verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. I mean, why include that detail? I put it to you that the reason you include that detail is that when Peter remembers this to Mark, who writes this down, because it's done on the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter, he's telling the story like this. He's saying, There it was, this huge storm. I'm a fisherman, I know big storms, and I've never seen one like this. I'm not prone to exaggeration. And Jesus, do you want to know what he was doing? He was asleep, but on a cushion? I mean, can you imagine the scene? It's just this complete um, disjunct between the chaos of this furious squall and the serenity of Jesus asleep on a cushion like a child having a nap. And Peter remembers it because it sticks in his memory. Secondly, just look at Jesus in these verses. He is magnificent. When all the world around him is losing its head, he doesn't flap a bit, does he? Look at verse 39. It's so understated in the narrative, but it makes the point. Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. 
it's not just that Jesus speaks to the wind, that is astonishing enough, but it's the tone of voice with which he speaks to the wind. He rebukes the wind, he tells it off, he scolds it like a naughty child. Now, the reason that's so important is because when natural disasters happen, I don't want us to think, and Scripture doesn't want us to think, that Jesus is okay with that, that God kind of shrugs his shoulders and says, well, that's just uh, collateral damage. Here he confronts a storm that threatens life and the loss of life, and he rebukes it as an imposter in his world. He says, you are not welcome, you shouldn't be here, quiet, be still. And you can you imagine the effect of that? The wind died down, and it was completely calm. You know, you don't have to be a sailor to know this, that if there's a storm going on, that waves can take hours, if not days, to die down. Put yourself there in the scene. What would it be like to go from the raging tempest and a life-threatening situation to three words spoken and instantly utter calm? Can you imagine how eerie it would be? The utter silence as the wind stops howling, and the waves immediately still? I can't still a bath in 30 seconds. How can Jesus still an ocean? You know, we have a measure of authority as human beings, but so often it's fragmentary, isn't it? I can just about get my three-year-old son to do what I want about half the time with a lot of cajoling, and then it takes quite a while for it to be worked out until he actually implements it. Jesus can calm a storm and the sea with three words instantaneously, there's no gap. This is utter power, utter control. Little wonder of the reaction in verse 41. The disciples are terrified. Is that what you think would be the normal reaction? Don't you think they'd be celebrating, we're saved, we're delivered, hallelujah? But they're terrified. Why? Well, because if they were terrified of the storm and the enormity, the magnitude of the storm, now they realize there is one who with three words can calm a storm. The power differential is too big. They are rightly terrified about someone with that level of power, right? This is so strange to us in our modern ears because we spend so long trying to mitigate our fears and control our fears. A few years ago, I was windsurfing out at sea and I was about a mile out um, when I got caught in a lull of wind. And I realized, unfortunately, with the timing of being in a lull of wind, that I had drifted into a shipping lane. And I looked up, and several hundred yards ahead was a large, very large tanker coming straight for me. And so I'm pumping the sail, I'm blowing on the sail, trying to get the wind going, anything I could just to get out of the way. And I managed just to move enough, because there was no way this thing was moving. It was him or me. And I managed just to move enough to be about 10 or 20 feet away when this enormous ocean tanker went past me. And it took my breath away. It was terrifying, because I was so small in comparison to this enormous tanker. And I realized that the tanker was so small in comparison to the enormity of the ocean. And the ocean is so small, and we could go on. For once, I got a sense of my right size in the universe. I am very small, and the world has some very large forces. So much of Western society tries to insulate us from that reality. So much of Western culture is about us trying to control our fears. You fear losing your possessions, we have insurance for that. You fear losing your data, don't worry, you can back it up on the cloud and be in control, notice the word, of your data, don't fear any longer. You fear losing your job, well, get a good CV, go to the right schools, have a good education, and you can control the outcome, can't you? 
You fear your health? Well, don't worry. We're going to control disease. We're told that all the time. Bold promises. Of course, the irony, as fast as we figure out how to cure one disease, then another disease crops up that we can't control. And the reality that we don't want to confront all the time is that there are big forces in the world that far dwarf us and outnumber us and outdo us for magnitude, and we can't control them. It's a complete facade. And the challenge here in this passage is how do you cope with that? You can try to control your fears, but that just increases fear because then you have two things to be afraid of. You've got the thing itself you're first afraid of, and now you've got the fear that your control mechanism won't work. It doubles the anxiety. It doesn't help the anxiety, which is probably why we're in what many sociologists are calling an anxiety epidemic here in the West. 13% of people in the UK, we're told by psychologists, will face an acute anxiety disorder at some point in their lives. The American Association of Psychiatrists looked, and last year there was an increase of 40% of people who said they felt more anxious this year than the year before, and it was 36% increase the year before. Do you see it rising all the time, the levels of anxiety? Why? Because we can't control our fears. We know that deep down. So what's the antidote? Verse 40. Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you see the opposite of fear is not control. The opposite of fear is faith. Faith in the one who is in control, because here's the punchline, my friend, you are not in control. Society is not in control. It's a complete myth. It's a lie. You can never be in control, but there is one who is in control. Who is this? that even the wind and waves obey him? Who is he? It's fitting that the sea is the focus of this miracle because in Hebrew thinking, the sea was the great symbolism of chaos, of unruly power. The Israelites were terrified of the sea. Psalm 89 verse 9, you, O Lord, rule the raging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. There is one who is in control. The Lord in heaven, the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things. Striking parallels here, if you've read the book of Jonah, between Jonah chapter 1 and what goes on here. And even the pagan sailors in Jonah chapter 1 know that there is only one person who can calm the sea. They cry out to the Lord of heaven and earth. If even pagans, non-Israelites, not versed in scriptures know that, surely we know that today. Who is Jesus if he can calm the sea like this? He's the Lord Almighty. He's the creator of all things. So the alternative is not for you to seek to control your fears, but face up to your fears and turn to him, the one who is in control, and trust in him. Have faith. That moves us to our second incident and Jesus engaging with the fear of the supernatural. Because if the first miracle was an engagement with nature and the powers that dwarf us in nature, the second one is an engagement with the powers that dwarf us in supernature, that is the miraculous, the supernatural. Look at verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5. They, that is the disciples, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. Look at the picture of this man. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. He had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. 
Has there ever been a more pitiful human being? I use that technically, a person more worthy of pity. Here he is, living among the tombs, a place of death, no place for the living. A place in ancient society of being unclean. He's an outcast. And then that horrible description, the torment, verse 5, as he cries out, the cutting of himself as he defiles the image of God in his own person by self-harm. And the forces involved here completely dwarf human beings again. Do you see how people have tried to control? They had bound him hand and foot, but the supernatural power was too much. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And then we get Jesus confronting this man and the demonic forces that hold him captive. Jesus asks them, verse 9, what is your name? And they reply, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion was the largest unit of Roman soldiers, several thousand. It's interesting that 2,000 pigs are mentioned here. If one demon dwarfs the power of any human being, how much 2,000 demons? This is a power beyond any human control. Now, I know I've got to pause now and deal with what many of you are thinking, particularly many Christians are thinking, which is surely, Pete, we don't believe in these things in our day and age. Isn't this a person who is psychiatrically, psychologically deeply unwell? Doesn't what he need, um, doesn't he need a counselor rather than an exorcist? Aren't we able to explain these things away? Sure, in ancient society 2,000 years ago, they didn't know any better. But this man needs help. He needs medication. He doesn't need an exorcism. We don't believe in those things anymore, do we? What to say to that? Well, first, a couple of things to say. This thesis that we have today deeply influences Western society. And many of you are not from Western society. I'm conscious of that, and you probably have no problem in believing in this. The majority of the world do believe in the supernatural. But in Western society, we have been told for a number of generations now that we only believe in the supernatural and the miraculous to explain what we have hitherto not been able to explain. But as we become more scientifically and medically and sociologically advanced, we can now explain everything in the world so we no longer need the God, the miraculous, the supernatural hypothesis. This is technically called the secularization thesis. Now, there's a number of things to say about that. First of all, despite people saying that, the reality is, is that it has not worked. The secularization thesis is undergoing substantial revision amongst even its most ardent advocates at the moment. Why? Because we are not even close to being able to explain our world by purely natural means. Do you really want to maintain that the causes of war, of crime, of evil and suffering in this world are purely explainable by psychological and social factors? as though people just do wrong things because they haven't been socially or psychologically programmed right? No one really believes that. My mother-in-law is a consultant psychiatrist. My sister-in-law is a doctor of psychology. Yes, that is a very intense family to be part of, but they're very lovely people. And neither of them, despite all of their qualifications, would ever maintain that they can explain everything. My wife is a doctor. She regularly says to me, the great myth that no one wants to believe is that despite all the qualifications as a doctor, the best you can do is point the body in the right direction and hope that God will do the rest. And she's a surgeon saying that. We like to believe the lie that we can explain everything. We can't explain everything. And you will be hopelessly naive in this world if you don't believe in the real personal force of evil in the world, undermining our human endeavors, 
fragmenting society. You will be a stranger to yourself if you don't believe that. Secondly, the idea that Christianity was only ever put forward as a way to explain the gaps in our knowledge is not the God of the Bible. God was never the God of the gaps in the Bible. He's the God of the whole thing. There is no sacred secular divide in Scripture. It's all sacred. God rules it all. He's in control of it all. And so the idea that we believe in the supernatural to explain the gaps is not the God of the Bible. I wonder if you notice there's a wonderful little detail in this passage that we often miss. It just shows how very integrated the biblical view is. Look at verse 15. After he's been healed, the man is described as in his right mind. In other words, Scripture doesn't look at this man and say he only needs an exorcist. Scripture looks at him as an integrated whole. It says he has a spiritual problem and he has a psychological problem and they're integrated and they're bound up together and you can't take them apart and Jesus heals both. So Scripture is far more nuanced, far more integrated than our binary modern minds. We need to have this integrated approach otherwise we will not understand the world in front of us. And again, as with the calming of the storm, did you notice the relative power imbalance? First of all, as people are compared to the demonic, but then as the demonic are compared to Jesus. Look at verse 10. This legion of demons, numbering several thousand, beg Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Verse 12, the demons begged Jesus. This is not a cosmic battle between good and evil that we are unsure which way it's going to turn out. Does it read like that to you? This reads like the heavyweight champion of the world against an 11-year-old schoolboy who's had no boxing training. Jesus is completely in control. The demons have to beg him. He has the hook in their nose. They can only do something if he permits it. And he can drive them out as easily as that. Please don't think that there is some cosmic battle between good and evil and we're not sure which way it's going to turn out. Jesus is in control. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. Now let me just deal briefly with the pigs because some of you will be looking at the issue of the pigs and you'll be thinking, I thought Christians were supposed to care about the environment and Jesus seems to not care tuppence about 2,000 pigs. Isn't that a little bit cruel? A few things to say about that. Firstly, yes, Jesus does care about the environment and yes, he does care about the pigs. These are animals he has made. These are part of his good created order. He created all things. He cares about all things, which is why many Christians rightly have been at the forefront of the modern ecological movement and should continue to be so. But secondly, no, 2,000 pigs are not as valuable as one human being made in the image of God. There is a value hierarchy in God's economy, and human beings made in the image of God have inestimable value, and one human being, one child, one baby, is more valuable than 2,000 animals, as valuable as they are. Secondly, you might say, well, why doesn't Jesus just drive the demons out? Why does he send them into the pigs? Well, if I can put it like this, when evil grips a society, when evil grips a person or a portion of society, there is no cost-neutral way of driving out evil. Evil always leaves its mark. Once it's gripped you, once it's gripped society, there are always scars. It's a really interesting cross-reference to do this cross-reference with Acts chapter 19, where in Ephesus, many people turn to Christ. 
And as a result of that, from this city that is bound up with the occult, all of the people bring out the books of the occult, their pagan spirituality, and they burn the books. And we're given the value of it in Acts chapter 19, 50,000 drachmas or 50,000 silver coins, 50,000 years wages. In other words, millions of millions of pounds. To cleanse evil from a society is not an easy thing to do. You know this because we've just been remembering it. Once war has gripped Europe, was it easy? Was there a cost-neutral way to end it? 37 million people? If evil grips a life through an addiction or something like that, is it easy? Is there a costless way to get rid of it? It's often very costly. And so Jesus sends the demons into the pigs because there is a significant cost. But he says they're going to pay for it rather than this man paying for it. And so the man is restored. And ultimately, I suppose as we think about that, that reminds us of the cross. Because the cross shows us once and for all that there is no cost-neutral way to deal with evil. The cost must be paid by someone or by something. And miraculously, Jesus says, I will pay the cost so that you don't have to pay the cost. He says, I will take the scars so that you can be healed. And here is the the wonder, the beauty, the magic even, dare I say, of the cross. That at the cross, because Jesus takes the cost on himself, it works in such a way that even your scars become areas of blessing for you if you trust in Jesus Christ. Even the cost you bear actually becomes part of God's sovereign plan so that you can be restored and to work all things together for your good. So truly for the Christian who turns to Jesus Christ, there is no cost because Jesus Christ has taken the cost. So we're left with Jesus, both in the calming of the storm and in the healing of the demon-possessed man as one with great power But do you notice that once again, the people are terrified when they come in verse 15 and see this man dressed and in his right mind, just like the disciples, they were afraid. But there is a difference in the reaction of the people in this region. These people ask Jesus to leave, the disciples don't. Because here's the thing about the cost. When you see the cost of evil, do you want to cling to it because you fear the cost is too much? Or do you want to expunge evil and face up to the cost? There is a straight choice. Jesus takes the cost so that we don't have to. He pays the price so that we don't need to pay it. He bears the scars so that we can be healed. We're going to sing the hymn in a moment, which goes now, Why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his perfect Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now cancelled at the cross? Jesus bears the cross so that we don't have to go to the cross. And that convinces us of two things. First of all, that he is powerful enough to deal with all the evil in the world. And secondly, that he is loving enough that he wants to deal with all the evil in the world. And so, who is this one? That even the wind and the waves obey him, that even demons obey him? Well, he's the sovereign Lord, the powerful king of all. But the second thing is he's also the one who draws near. If I can put it like this, he's the one in the boat with you. The disciples seem to forget that. He's in the boat. He's God with them. He's not an abstract deity with all power wielding it from a distance. He's there asleep on a cushion. My friends, whatever you're facing right now, whatever you're afraid of, 
He's in the boat with you if you'll have him. He's there right by you. He's a prayer away just as the disciples cry out. So you can cry out to him and he will bring you healing and he will bring you restoration. You can try to control your fears or you can face up to your fears and trust in him. A couple of things to say as we close by way of application. Can I ask you, are you trying to control your fear or are you facing your fear with faith? Verse 40 of chapter 4, why are you so afraid? If you have Jesus in the boat of your life, why are you so afraid? Stop trying to control your fears. So often Christians say, yes, I know Jesus is in control, but also I'm worried about my job interview. I'm worried about what the future will hold. I'm worried about whether I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. No, there's no but also. If he's in the boat with you, my friend, he loves you. He's in control. Trust him. And to the extent that you have faith, to that extent, it drives out fear. You can't control your fears. Don't try. It will merely make you more and more anxious. Bring your fears to the foot of Jesus. Secondly, as you do that, are you willing to face the cost of turning away from evil? It is striking, chapter 5, verse 17, isn't it, what they ask? The people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. I've seen many people do this over the years. They see Jesus as the one who has control. They see him on the cross, and then they see the cost, and they say, please leave. That is crazy. That is crazy. He can control all things. He will work all things together for your good. He will drive out evil from your life. If you ask him to leave, you are asking him to allow evil in your life because you fear the cost. That is crazy. Come to him. Face up to the cost. Turn to him. Trust him. And thirdly, if Jesus delivered you from fear by faith, then look at this man, probably the first missionary in the Bible. Verse 20. The man who had been demon-zessed went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. If Jesus has delivered you from fear by faith, are you talking to people about it? You've got an incredible story to tell. To a world that is trying to control its fears, you say, you can't, and I couldn't, but I've turned to Jesus, and he gives me a peace that I don't fully understand, but it's something that I long you have as well. Let me talk to you about him go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look at this and we look at the very human responses of fear and seeking to control our fears, Lord, and we see ourselves in it if we pause and reflect for a moment. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who delivers us from fear by faith. Help us to trust him, to see not only his power, but also his love. That means there is nothing for us that he cannot do and nothing for us that he will not do. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.